Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Genesis chapter 45. It's been a couple of months uh, since we left off in Genesis and I left you hanging. Uh, we just saw at the end of chapter 44 uh, this remarkable change that God had made in Judah and by extension in all of the brothers. Um, the conversion that was made, this one who had sold Joseph into slavery was now testifying that he had offered himself to be a surety in place of Benjamin. He basically had told Jacob and was testifying to Joseph, my life for his, my life for Benjamin. It's a remarkable change of God's grace, but we didn't see what Joseph's reaction to this would be. Well, that's where chapter 45 comes. Genesis 45 really is the climax of this Judah-Joseph cycle that makes up the, the last section of this first book of the Bible. And though this morning we come then to see not only Joseph revealing himself to his brothers, but ultimately God reveals himself, or at least reveals his big purposes uh, for Joseph and the brothers, and ultimately how this big purpose works out in our lives and for our salvation. But in order for us to see this together, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for, together and ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come to you as your people this morning, desiring to hear the word of the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come. Just as our confession teaches us, speak in and through Holy Scripture, we ask. May we hear your voice, and may we see our Lord Jesus and what he, he is doing in our lives. And ultimately, lead us by the hand to our faithful Father who loves us, who sent his Son, who gave himself for us and pours out his spirit in our hearts so that we might know his love. Triune God, we pray, do your work in our midst, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read Genesis 45 together, we're going to read the first 15 verses and then skip down to verse 25 and read to the end of the chapter. So Genesis chapter 45, beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine had been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. But God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, 
so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Now verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the, father of, the spirit of their father Jake, Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, my wife Sarah has gotten me hooked on two HGTV shows over the last several years. Perhaps your spouse has gotten you hooked on them as well. The first was Fixer Upper, uh, which of course has Chip and Joanna Gaines from Waco, Texas. And here more recently has been Hometown, which takes place in Laurel, Mississippi. Uh, just uh, up the road from where we used to live in Hattiesburg. I have learned all sorts of things from watching these shows. Above all, shiplap. I didn't even know what shiplap was. But apparently shiplap's a thing. Who knew? Uh, and I also learned what kind of things you can do to your house to be really fun. Um, there's fun colors and fun things you can do with your fun house. Um, lots of really interesting things that I've learned. But one of the things that I've learned from both shows, and we actually watched the new Fixer Upper last night, Welcome Home, in case you didn't know there was such a series. Um, but one of the things that I've learned through watching these shows through the years is the way the show builds, right? You, they start out with this house that um, really needs a renovation and can sometimes can be super rough. Um, and then the family goes away, the owners of the home go away, uh, and Chip and Joanna or, uh, or the Napiers go in uh, and they kind of do their magic. And you see the demo day and they go through the whole thing and everything is building to the big reveal, right, at the end of the show. And they bring the homeowner and uh, often there's a screen in front and the, on the screen there's this picture of the old house or the, at least the house before the renovation. Uh, and Chip and Jojo will say, are you ready now to see your fixer-upper? Uh, and they pull the screen apart, and bingo, bango, there's the new house, all renovated. And inevitably, there's tears and screams and excitement because of the big reveal. Well, there's a sense in which what's going on here in chapter 45 of Genesis uh, is similar. Um, up to this point, uh, Joseph's brothers, Judah and the rest, they didn't really know what was going on. As far as they were concerned, their brother was dead. At least that's what they intended. They had sold Joseph into slavery. He had been taken away at age 17 by Midianite traders, um, sold into slavery, and presumably he had been put to hard labor and he was now died. He had now died. Uh, and so they didn't know what was going on, if you will, behind the screen. All sorts of things were happening, but at this moment in chapter 45, the screen is pulled back. And Joseph's brothers begin to see, oh, 
this is what's going on. God's big reveal has happened. Not only do we get to see Joseph, but we see what God's purposes were all along. In, in our freely chosen evil, yes, but also in his mercy to us as the people of God. It's remarkable, isn't it, to, to, get, to get the screen pulled back, to see what God was up to and behind the screen. We, we often wish we could have that in our lives, don't we? At least I do. There have been countless points in my life where I, I wish that God would simply pull the screen back so that I could see a little bit about what was happening. I wish for God's big reveal. Uh, I wish God had told me, what, well, why did I get this job, but, but not this job that I really wanted? Or, or why did I go this direction, make this move, or go to this place? Um, perhaps it has to do with school. Some of you are heading off to college. Why was I admitted to this college? But not that college, really my first choice. I'm going to my second or my third choice. Why did that happen? Or I'm in this grad school program. Where four years ago, I never thought I'd be doing this. Why am I in this program and not that program? Others of you are wondering why this illness has happened at this time. Or as you're preparing to retire, why did the stock market do this at this particular point when you're ready to retire and you thought you had all your plans in a row? And, and we wish that God would simply pull the curtain back, pull the screen apart, and allow us to see with some specificity, oh, this is what God was up to. And God doesn't do that, does he? Does, God doesn't give us the why. He doesn't show us in detail what his purposes are. Instead, he gives us chapters like Genesis chapter 45. This chapter helps us, I think, though we may not know the specificity of why. Why this, not that? Why this school, this job, this, this happening? Why this, not that? Genesis 45 doesn't give us the specificity of why, but it does tell us something important. Namely, God has a purpose. And God's ultimate purpose is one of salvation. His good that he intends in your life, in the free decisions that you are making, God actually has a purpose. He's working all things together for your salvation. And he's doing this ultimately not because he hates you. No, God's doing this because he loves you. He's doing this because he is your good, good father who delights in you and cares for you. That's why he's working all things for your salvation. The word we use to describe all of this is the word providence. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds us as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them so that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Did you hear it? The catechism teaches us that God's holding us by his hand, and he's, he's upholding us, and he's guiding us, and he's directing us, and with his other hand, he's bringing all sorts of things into our lives, really wonderful things, and really hard things. But the hand that's guiding us and the hand that's holding us and the hand that's actually bringing things into our lives is not, is not the hand of a malevolent God. A 
hateful God, an angry God. No. The hand that's holding you and guiding you and the hand that's bringing things into your life is the hand of a father who loves you. Who loves you. Which means when we don't, even when we don't know the answer why in specificity, we can trust that somehow what is happening to me even now is part of God's purpose in my life. And one day we may actually have a sense when God does his big reveal what it was all about. I think that's what's happening to these brothers is God's big reveal begins with the revelation of Joseph's person. As I mentioned at the beginning, we, we left off the last time with Judah's great speech where he tells his brothers, I'm offering myself as a surety, my life for Benjamin's. And he replays that for Joseph. And Joseph is so moved by the speech that for the third time in three or four short chapters, he weeps. But this time, he, he stays with his brothers. He sends everyone else out. But he stays with his brothers and he weeps freely and loudly, so much so that the Egyptians hear it. And Pharaoh's household hears it. He's weeping so loudly. He's moved to such a degree. And not only is he moved, he reveals himself to his brothers and he says, I am Joseph. Now think about it. What did Joseph's brothers think? Like, what? <laughs> like, I mean... They, they sold him into slavery. The last time they saw him, he was 17 years old. They've been telling everyone he's dead, that he's no more. And now here he is, some almost 20 years later. And he's standing right in front of them. And he's telling them, I am Joseph. Verse 3 tells you that they were terrified. His brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. The word there has the idea of being dumbfounded, being gobsmacked. It's that kind of paralyzing fear when your brain freezes. You get that deer-in-the-headlight look. They're in shock. They couldn't understand. They can't compute. How can this be Joseph? How can he be still alive? And how in the world can he be the prime minister of Egypt? The revelation of Joseph's person, it was undoing but then they started calculating, undoubtedly, in the moments that happened in quick succession. Wait, if this is Joseph, and if he's the prime minister of Egypt, then he has the power to take his revenge. Which is why Joseph moves, I think, quickly to comfort his brothers by telling them, no, this is what God's purpose was all along. That, that ultimately God's purpose is one of comfort for you. That's what verses 4 and 8, 4 to 8 tell you. He, he tells them, come near. Don't stay far away from me. Come near to me, please. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these, the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now notice, he doesn't let his brothers off the hook. Twice he tells them, you sent me here. You sold me into slavery. He doesn't let them off the hook. But at the end of the day, whom, whom does Joseph say actually sent him there? 
Well, he clearly says God did. Three different times. Verse 5, God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7, God sent me ahead of you. Verse 8, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three different times, Joseph makes clear there was a concurrence going on. Yes, they had freely chosen actions, actions with an evil intent and an evil end. They sold him into slavery and they wanted him to die. What they did was evil. But God had a bigger purpose. God had a greater purpose. God the Father had Joseph in his hand and he was bringing this into Joseph's life and into the lives of the brothers for a greater purpose, the purpose of salvation. That, that's the ultimate good here. Joseph makes that plain. In verse 5, he says, Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7, the NIV says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. You meant it for evil. You meant to send me into slavery. You meant to kill me. But God had a greater purpose in mind. And the greater purpose in mind was to save your life to preserve our people which means then if we're going to stand back and look at this entire story this joseph judah story in the light of the entirety of biblical revelation if joseph doesn't go to egypt there's no jesus if joseph doesn't go to egypt there is no jesus now to be sure God may have preserved his people in a different way. But, but Joseph makes it plain that twice he tells them there's more famine yet to come. There's been two years of famine. There's five more years to come. You're going to come to poverty if I don't provide for you. You're going to starve to death. And if Israel starves to death, if these 12 brothers and all of their children starve to death, then the promises made to Abraham may in fact falter. No Joseph going to Egypt no provision for Jacob's family, no Jesus. Which means ultimately that part of God's big reveal is not just for Joseph's brothers. Part of God's big reveal is for you. Because friends, if there's no Joseph going to Egypt, there's no worship service on August the 1st in 2021 here in Memphis, Tennessee with people who've come to believe in Joseph's greater son, Jesus. You're, you're part of this story. This is your story. The story of Israel and the church is your story. But there's more here even than that. Because here in chapter 45, we have in a microcosm the way that God is at work. We may not always see it. The screen may cover it. All we see is this old dilapidated house called our life. But behind the screen, God is in fact at work. How do we know? We know because this is central to the way God works throughout the Bible. At the very heart of the Bible is the very story of Jesus in which evil happens, freely chosen evil, evil intent, evil end. The evil intention of one of his friends selling him into, into uh, captivity by his opposition with it for a slave's price. And he does it how? With a kiss. He's carted off to the Jewish court where there's false witnesses who, who, who witness against him, trumped up charges, a miscarriage of justice, and then he's dragged to the Roman court where the same thing happens. The judge knows he's innocent and yet he condemns him to die. Both the Jewish court and the Roman court do injustice plainly, clearly. He's carted off. He's beaten. 
Jesus is taken then to Golgotha, having carried his cross down this, what we now call the Stations of the Cross, the Via Della Rosa in Jerusalem. He's taken outside the city to a place called the Rock, Golgotha, and he's nailed to a cross. The Son of God and the Son of Man having nails piercing his wrists, nails piercing his feet, suspended between heaven and earth, darkness at noon, and it's all happening. This day of unspeakable evil, and we call that day Good Friday. Not evil Friday. We call that day Good Friday. Why? You meant it for evil. That meant it for good. The God who actually is able to work all things together for salvation is the one who is at work in Joseph's life, in the scenes of Holy Week in Jerusalem. And this same God is at work in your life, too. Don't you see that God's purpose that he reveals here is one of salvation. And where God's purpose is, it's met with God's provision. What only happens is after Joseph tells these brothers of his about God's purpose, God sent me ahead of you to preserve your lives. He provides for them and shows them that God's purpose will be, in fact, accomplished. And he does so through the provision. Verses 9 to 15, Joseph describes how he's going to place them in in the best part of the land. He's the Lord of Egypt, after all. And so he tells his brothers he's going to place them in Goshen, which is a territory we believe that's east of the Nile River, near the administrative centers of Helopolis and Memphis. And then in verses 16 to 20, Pharaoh echoes all that Joseph says, but then extends it. In verse 18, he says, I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. Verse 20, the best of all of Egypt will be yours. And then to confirm it, in verses 21 to 24, Joseph gives them clothes and money and stuff. Verse 23 tells you, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, then female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. But in all of this provision, we should not miss the point. God is using Joseph to make provision for Israel. They will not die, but live. And at least initially, they will be treated well because of Joseph. But this provision is not just to care for God's people. It also is going to have another purpose. As we're going to see in verses 25 to 28, it serves as a sign and a seal of the promises As the brothers take the provision back and they come to their father, Jacob, it's all so hard to believe. But Joseph will ultimately revive, or Jacob will ultimately revive, not just because of the words the brothers tell about Joseph, but also because of the stuff. The donkeys and the grain and the provision, it serves as a sign pointing to the the truth that Joseph is alive and he's providing for his people. And it serves as a seal, a seal of authenticity. You can trust the promises are true. Friends, that's what we have here this morning. Here in a few minutes, we're going to be coming to the Lord's table. And what we have here is a sign and a seal. The promises of Jesus Christ might seem incredible to us. We might faint, become numb to them. And yet, God, in his grace, in his provision for you, he gives you bread and juice as a sign, pointing you to 
Joseph's greater son, Jesus, the one who is, in fact, alive and ruling over his world. And it's a seal of authenticity that these promises are real and true and for you. It's part of the, the way God cares for you. It's part of his provision for you. That he would give you such signs and seals to remind you of his promise. Not one of God's promises towards you will, in fact, fail. He'll bring you all the way home. That's part of the rest of the lesson of this chapter. You have to understand this, I think, a little slant, but verses 25 to 28 tell us how God actually keeps his promises, not just in providing and preserving Abraham's family, but also in keeping the promise that he had made to Abraham. If we can connect the dots uh, and reach back to Genesis chapter 15, there you might remember there was a promise made. Of course, what you probably remember from Genesis 15 is the strange ceremony in which God splits animals and walks between them and takes a death curse upon himself that he, if it were possible, would die if he failed to keep his promises. But what were the promises? What were the promises to Abraham? Well, Genesis 15 verse 13, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Well, when Abraham receives that promise, first he had to be wondering, well, what descendants? But then, how are my descendants going to get from this promised land to a land that's not their own? Genesis 45 tells you that this is how. This is how. Joseph's the prime minister of Egypt. He tells his father, come to me. He sends chariots and carts to bring all their stuff. And Joseph and the 12 brothers and all of their children and all their possessions, 70 people total, will make their way down to Egypt. Make their way down to a place that at least initially will treat them well, but eventually will not. But God doesn't take them down there, listen, for slavery. No, God takes his people down there ultimately to deliver them. God takes them down there in a place where they will be preserved and they'll grow from 70 to 600,000 who will be brought out in the Exodus. And God will bring them out in the Exodus through the blood of spotless lambs and death will pass by and they'll plunder the Egyptians and they will be brought through the wilderness and they'll be brought to the very edge of the promised land. In fact, it's likely that's when the children of Israel will first hear the words of Genesis read. We'll see this on Sunday nights this fall as we look at various texts and numbers. But it's likely that the, the writings of Moses would be first read to the children of Israel sitting there on the edge of the promised land. They're there in Moab. The river Jordan is there and they can just look into the land filled with milk and honey. And they say, oh, this is how we got here. The screen's been pulled back. They saw what God's purposes were with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Judah and being led out 400 years later and wandering in the wilderness and the first generation having died and now this second generation sitting there. This is how we got here and we're just about to enter in to the promised land. The God who's kept his promises before will certainly keep his promises now and we will make it into the promised land. But friend, if that's true for Israel and it surely is, as the rest of the Old Testament tells us, how much more true is it for you? Because let's face it, we, as believers in Jesus Christ, that is our story. You and I, we have been set free 
from death itself through the blood of a spotless lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we have been brought through waters of baptism and we've wandered in the wilderness and we've been brought, each one of us, and we're standing right on the edge of the promised land. And the moment we die, yes, we go into the presence of God and Jesus Christ by the Spirit and we worship the triune God and to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. But there's coming a day where the greater promised land will arrive, new heavens and new earth and resurrection, and we're right on the edge of it. And we might wonder, are we fools to believe this? And God says, no, you're not a fool. Because the God who kept his promises to Joseph and the God who kept his promises to Israel and the God who kept his promise in Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead is your God. He's your father and he's got you by his hand and he's leading you through the wilderness and he's bringing things into your life so that you might learn to trust him and hope alone in him. But there's coming a day when the, when the hymn writer says the skies will be rolled back like a scroll, like a screen separating. And Jesus will be there in his full glory. And your eyes will see him. And he will say, welcome child. Welcome to the promised land. And on that day, you'll say, I was not a fool to believe this. I've trusted in my faithful Savior, and he has delivered me. That's going to be a glorious day, my friends. The day of God's final big reveal. I can't wait for it. Can you? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do long for that day when Jesus shall return and he shall bring us into the promised land. And all the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ will be seen not with eyes of faith, but with our own eyes. Lord, until that day, we pray that you would grant us grace to hope in you. And even as we come to the table here in a moment, we pray that this provision would reassure our hearts, would reassure our hearts that we are right to trust and to hope in you. And so, Lord, please do your work in our lives, we ask, in these moments. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.